Hello, and welcome to Lines from Loganberry, from Loganberry Books. We are a local independent bookshop located in the historic Larchmere neighborhood of beautiful Cleveland, Ohio. With this podcast, we hope to stay connected to you as we weather the coronavirus storm together. Each week, we will help you discover new books, rave about our latest favorite reads, and check in with our friendly bookstore cat Otis to learn more about what's going on in our humble shop. For more information about Loganberry Books, visit our website at loganberrybooks.com or check our social media at Loganberry Books on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. On today's episode, Local Voices Manager Maisha Hedden hosts Julia Kuo, Cleveland-based illustrator of the newly published picture book I Dream of Papua. In their discussion, Maisha and Julia discuss her career, her experience working on Papua, and how she was able to relate the work to her own lived experience as a Taiwanese-American. All of this and more on this episode of Lines from Lokenberry. So today, we're going to have a conversation and clinic with Julia Kuo. Julia Kuo currently lives in Cleveland, Ohio, and she's a jewel of the Cleveland literary community being a national illustrator. She's illustrated more than 10 children's books, and she has illustrated for numerous national magazines, such as Harper's Magazine, The New York Times, and The Wall Street Journal. She began her career here in Cleveland at American Greetings and had a short uh, stint as a pure entrepreneur um, when she started her own card company. She is the perfect person to teach the art and the business of illustration. It's part of the reason why we're so grateful to have her here today. She's taught illustration courses at Columbia College in Chicago and also at her alma mater, WashU in St. Louis. She is currently the recipient of the 2019-2021 Gray Center Mellon Collaborative Fellowship at the University of Chicago. So ladies and gentlemen, Julia Quo, thank you so much. Go ahead, Julia. Aisha. Okay, let's just get started with a little bit of story time. I Dream of Popo, written by Livia Blackburn, illustrated by Julia Quo. I dream with Popo as she rocks me in her arms. She sings, Bebe Shin, Bebe Gun. In my heart, I hear, my baby, my heart, my baby, my love. I walk with Popo in the park, squeezing her finger in my chubby palm. When I wobble, she holds me up. She pushes me on the swing and lifts me to hear the birds sing. I bow to Popo on New Year's Day. She asks if I've been good and gives me a red envelope. Then she fries up crispy, gooey, sweet New Year's cakes, so hot they almost burn my tongue. I sit with Popo and she shows me where I'm going to live. Here is Taiwan, so tiny, surrounded by blue. There is San Diego, far, far away. You will learn and see many new things, she says. I wave at Popo before I board my flight with Mama and Papa. The airplane thrums like the biggest cat I've ever seen. Fly safely, Popo says. Call me every week and tell me about your adventures. I think of Popo as I meet new friends, kids with hair of every color and skin of every shade. They say hi. I say ni hao. I talk to Popo from across the sea. I'm learning a new language, I say, and I miss your dumplings. I'll make them for you when you visit, she says. 
I draw a pole pole at my new school. Below the picture, I write my grandma, though it feels strange to call her that. I learn other words too. Dumplings, motorcycle, home, taxi, teacher, school bus, friend, new house, palm tree. After a while, the words form easier on my tongue. I hug Po Po when I come back to visit. Now Ni Hao is what feels strange in my mouth. Other words too are hard to catch like fish in a deep well. I ask Mama why I can't talk to Po Po like before. You can still hug her as tight as before, she says. I do, Po Po hugs me even tighter. I eat with Po Po in her house, surrounded by the fragrance of Gui Hua blossoms. She cooks my favorite dumplings dipped in soy sauce and sesame oil. Her house looks smaller than I remember, but everything smells the same. Popo looks smaller too. Her hair is more white. When I board the plane again, Popo packs me dumplings to eat on the way. I wonder how she'll look when I see her again. I pray for Popo when we hear she is sick. I sing to her as she lies in bed, frail under heavy blankets. I wish I could reach across the ocean and hold her up. She whispers to me in a voice soft as birdsong, Baby Shin, my baby, my heart. It's a promise and a kiss. I dream of Popo coming to me while I sleep. I say, Ni hao. She says, Hello. I say, Wo ai ni. She says, I love you too. A breeze brushes my face, rich with the scent of Gui Hua. I tell Popo about my adventures and she smiles. Thank you so much. That was beautiful. So first question for you in um, our conversation now. I Dream of Poor Poor is a story of uh, gentle immigration and it's beautiful with its, um, with, its, with its rich colors. I wanna know what originally drew you to the story? What, what made you sign on to this project? Well, I like that it's sad and it's bittersweet. I'm always drawn to stories like that. But I think more than anything, the fact that it was a Taiwanese story. So um, I've been able to illustrate a lot of different stories, always by other people, because I've prior to this year have always been just an illustrator. And, you know, I've illustrated some Korean American books, um, some Japanese American ones about internment um, and non-Asian books too. But these always involve a lot of research because I'm not Korean American, I'm not Japanese American, and I don't know these stories. So being able to draw a story that came from my own experiences is just um, something I've never experienced before. And I think it's really special. And, you know, I, my parents live in Taiwan and I, I visit them every year when there's not a pandemic and I say goodbye to them just like the little girl does. So it just felt very close to home. It was, there was no question about whether or not I would take it. That's uh, wonderful. And so actually that leads us right into our next question. Do did you get an opportunity to meet Liv Blackburn? And um, talk to me about like your shared vision for the book, like how you came together with her beautiful words and it's a really touching story. I actually got a little choked up the first time I read it um, and how you chose to represent it. And I was especially interested in the colors that you use. Like you do so many like salmons and mauves and reds and like, how did you, how did you make those decisions visually? Yeah, so I've never met Livia in person, although we've done a lot of um, a couple of these events together and we've talked a bit on the phone. Um, she actually lives in Southern California where I grew up. So that's just a very strange coincidence. 
generally authors and illustrators don't talk to each other during the picture book process. Um, you, we each talk to the editor separately and at different parts of the process. So they kind of keep it separate in a way to kind of maintain their um, artistic control of how where the book is going. Um, but you know, she does see it at certain points where she is able to give feedback and kind of make a couple suggestions. So as for the colors, I definitely, I, you know, in a, in a book about Taiwanese culture, you have to use red because red is the super auspicious color. Um, if you go to Taiwan, you'll see it like on banners and papers everywhere. And on top of that, Taiwan is a subtropical island. So it's, it's lush, it's green. Um, there are plants growing everywhere. You just can't stop them. And so I wanted to have all these different shades of green um, and then a little bit of gold. So I think all the other colors were derivatives of those. Wonderful. And then last thing, the ending of I Dream of Paul Paul was very mysterious. Like the grandmother, she seems to pass away, except the little girl is still talking to her. So like, what do you, what do you think is going on in the story right there? So she definitely does pass away <laughs> and she lives on in the girl's dreams. So this, this comes from Livia's personal experience where she, you know, this, the little girl is Livia. She was born in Taiwan and she immigrated. She was very close to her popo and she left when she was five and she, she lost a bit of her language. So, you know, she found it harder and harder to talk to with, with her popo, but she would start to have dreams of, the, of them meeting and she would dream that her popo, um, they would have extensive like conversations in English in her dreams. And I, I think that's really heartbreaking, but- It is heartbreaking. Uh, yeah, and so in her original manuscript, she actually had Popo explicitly passing. And that was the one edit that Connie, our editor made. It's like, maybe we shouldn't make it so explicit. We should, you know, and so I think that's really shown itself when my friends have been reading it to their kids. The friends have no idea, or the, the kids have no idea what's going on. They're like, mom, why are you crying? <laughs> Because, you know, each each is interpreting it differently. I loved it. I did. It was it's sort of like mysterious. It's very ghostly. Like maybe Popo is a spirit now. He lives inside of your head. I loved actually that part of the story. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about you as a professional. Um, so what would you say, how would you describe um, being a freelance illustrator? Like it would be very interesting to get the definition of the career from somebody who is doing it. Okay, so I would say that I primarily do children's books and editorial work for newspapers and magazines. Um, this is a book heavy couple of years for me. So at this moment, you know, I Dream of Popo just published. Um, I have another book called I'm an American, the story of Wong Kim Ark, and it's about birthright citizenship. That's publishing on, November 2nd this year, which is election day, not by coincidence. Um, I'm finishing up my, my, my own debut author illustrator book called Let's Do Everything and Nothing. So that's the first one that I've written and illustrated myself. And I'm starting yet another book about bioluminescence. So we, I am also writing that one and we just finished up the manuscript. So it's about time to start on sketches. But with, as a freelance illustrator, you are doing anywhere from five to 10 projects at any given time. So I'm just past midway through a fellowship with the Gray Center at U Chicago, and that's about investigating structural racism through the lens of COVID. So a lot different. I also try to 
volunteer. So for example, last March, I did some PSAs for the Cleveland Department of Health. My climbing gym is um, starting a nonprofit to address who has access to climbing. So, you know, they needed a logo and things. And so there's kind of this mix um, that is ever always shifting based on what, what projects are happening at that time. You stay busy. I can't believe that right now, even as we speak, you're working on at least five different projects, not even including your, um, your volunteer work. What's so interesting about you is just how you combine your artistic pursuits along with your, um, with your entrepreneurial pursuits. Now, I know that your grandfather was a, he was a shop owner, right? Yes. And the, your father was entrepreneurial. So how do you see your, um, your work as an entrepreneur tying in with your work as an artist? Yeah, I think, you know, being a freelance illustrator, it's definitely running a small business you know, you do everything. So you do everything from acquire projects to negotiate how much each one pays. Um, you make sure everything runs through, like you chase deadlines just as much as your clients do. Um, on my tax, my taxes are like a collection of 1099s, the rare W-2 and writing off expenses for everything from my home office to some of my internet to a New York Times subscription. So um, it's kind of a, a big loose bag of of different tasks, but I like the variety. So I think, um, I think I actually prefer it this way, you know, kind of like always having to keep track of the bigger picture. I hope that you get a chance to talk more about that during, um, during the slide deck, because that sounds, for those of us who aren't entrepreneurs, that sounds absolutely positively overwhelming. Like I have, <laughs> I have one 1099. I, I don't even know what I'm going to do. Okay. So I do have an accountant. I can't <laughs> lie about that. Okay. <laughs> Last thing. So tell us about the current trends in illustration, especially around technology. I think my answer to that is I'm not super updated in terms of the current trends. As far as the technology, I use something called a Cintiq, um, which is sitting right here. It's like a very large screen that I can draw on directly. Wow. The previous generation was a screen, was a pad that didn't have a screen. So you'd be drawing here, but then looking at the screen. And, and before that, you would draw things in analog, you'd scan them, then you bring them into the computer and edit them on Photoshop. And so things are ever changing. Um, there are like a lot of competitors who are trying to take down the Wacom Cintiq, which is what I have. Um, and I expect them to keep changing. And I think the answer is I, I know that I'll never be able to really keep up. Um, and illustration is an inherently trendy business. And I think that I've, I've personally seen that it's harder for women than it is for men as they age into the field. Um, it, it has something to do with the perception of how trendy they are. And a lot of, you know, something that illustrators can do is they can teach. And that's why I made sure to get some teaching experience um, earlier on. I wanted to dip my feet into it and see if I could do it competently. I'm not sure if I did, but um, at least I know what it feels like. And so I think, you know, it was, it is nice to be able to share what I know. And I would be happy if I got to teach later on in my career. Amazing. Okay. Conversation in clinic. We've already learned so much from Julia. Okay. So I think it's the perfect time to move on and you can start your slide deck. Thank you so much. I'm going to just, you know, talk a little bit about the logistics of making a book from the illustrator's point of view. But I just first want to say Loganberry is this beautiful bookstore. I actually drew this picture in 2011 when I used to live around the corner. And it really is kind of like a dream bookstore. I should have drawn the inside. 
And so I know I kind of talked about the different types of projects um, that I do. So this is the picture of Loganberry. Um, and so these are some of the projects that I've worked on throughout the years, just to show some variety. So Sound of Silence is the last picture book that came out. Uh, it was written by Katrina Goldsato. This picture in the middle is from the I Am an American, um, the story of Wong Kim Ark, and that's the one coming out on election day. It's about birthright citizenship. This book in the bottom left is the one that Maisha mentioned, Heroism Begins With Her, and it's about strong women in military history. This middle bottom one is an editorial image for the Wall Street Journal, and it was about how um, Tiananmen, the legacy of Tiananmen Square is being erased by the current regime. On the right are two images that I've done for Cleveland or in Cleveland. So the top right is a book for neighborhood progress written by Justin Glanville, who's a reporter at Idea Stream. And the bottom right is a mural that I did um, for the Van Aken Shopping District, which is right by where I live. So for publishing, the world publishing market is dominated by the U.S. market. And the U.S. market is dominated by five publishers. I guarantee you that if you look at your bookshelf, 90% of the books will come from these five publishers. HarperCollins, Simon & Schuster, um, Penguin Random House, Hatchet, Macmillan, everything comes from them. You might look at a book and say, well, it has a different name here. That's not one of these five. And that's because all of these different publishing houses have imprints. They have dozens of imprints. Purely for Macmillan's children's book imprints, there are nine of them. So I Dream of Popo was published by Roaring Brook Press. And every imprint has its own executive editor and editors under them. So an editor's job, aside from editing a manuscript and maybe doing a little bit of art direction, um, is to acquire books. They say, you know, in their job description is, you know, you have to acquire X many books a year. And it's their job to find these stories and then get them made. So Connie was the editor on our book and she was approached by an agent, Jim, who is representing Livia Blackburn, the author. Livia was already accomplished author by this time. Um, she is a New York Times bestseller and her bread and butter is YA novels. So I Dream of Popo was actually the first book that she, first children's book that she made. Um, so what happens is she writes this book, shows it to her agent who says, this is great. And then he pitches it to different editors, including Connie. And Connie, I think I, think I remember hearing that she, she said yes to it immediately. And so Connie's next job then is to find an illustrator. And so like Livia, I'm also represented by an agent. Um, it's really, it's possible to enter the U.S. publishing market without representation, but it's hard to stay in there without it. And this is something I'm happy to talk about in the Q&A if people have questions. So my agent is M Emily Van Beek. Um, she is an amazing agent and she represents both authors and illustrators. So this list is just a list of her clients from A to M. So you can see how many people she represents, including Lois Lowry, who wrote Number of the Stars, also including Jenny Han, who wrote the To All the Boys I've Loved series, which is now a trilogy on Netflix. So I know that I only have so much of Emily's time, but her time with me is gold. Like she accounts for probably half or more of my career. I owe a lot to her. So what happens is Connie approaches Emily and, and me and says, here's the manuscript, um, here are some terms, tell me if you're interested. And so I looked at the manuscript and I said, Emily, like I, I wanna do this book. Um, Emily, do you think it's a good idea? And so this is when we get into the numbers. 
so just kind of to explain how children's books are compensated, it's all about the royalties. So these are just kind of examples of numbers, but they are not unreasonable examples. For royalties, it's typical to get 5%. So the illustrator individually would get 5% or the author would get 5%. And let's say your book is $20. That means you are receiving $1 for every book sold. So if you sell 10,000 books, then you get $10,000. So that's what an advance is. It's an advance against royalties. They're kind of saying, the publisher is saying, we think that you, you can sell at least 10,000 books. We're gonna give you that money upfront as, as compensation, no strings attached. But when you sell your 10,000 and first book, then you start cashing in 5% of every sale. So it incentivizes you to help the book perform well, because that is how passive income works. You know, you keep, you bring in more money on work that has already been created. So with an agent, agents take cuts anywhere from 15 to 30%. And, you know, you might think, well, I would have to give up $1,500 to my agent. You know, that seems like a lot, but part of an agent's job is to negotiate up on the advance. So let's say you were offered 10,000, the agent might counter with 15,000. That would mean the agent takes home their cut and you still are left with more than your original offer. You would go home with 12, you know, more than $12,000. Um, just a couple more things. Payout happens, you know, on signing, often with sketches and delivery, just kind of spreading it out so that you could feed yourself during this six month process. Um, you get bonuses for high performance. Everything is about incentivizing performance. So you get bonuses for good, um, good sales. The Caldegat honor is the highest honor that can be given to a book illustrator. So you get a bonus for that. And everything is kind of done in fine detail. All the different rights for eBooks, um, board books, hardcover. It's often looks like a percentage. You get a percentage up to a certain print number. And then if you perform above that, that percentage increases. Okay, so once everyone, all parties have agreed on this, it's announced in Publishers Weekly. So if you are curious about the state of books, not just children's books, we're talking every type of book here, they're all published and you can receive it. You can get a weekly newsletter that says who has signed what deals. So I think that's actually pretty cool. So we, you know, when the deal is finalized, it's published and everyone can see that this book is going to be created. And so from then we get into working on it, the meat of working on the illustration part. Um, we take the manuscript and we paginate it. We decide, hmm, how should the text be spread out from page to page? And then we also have to determine style. So Connie, the editor and I will have a conversation and say, you know, and I'll be like, maybe Connie, I'll, I'll pitch you a couple different styles and see what you think is suitable. So in I Dream of Popo's case, I did these two different versions. Um, the one is based on shape, the other one is based on line work, and if you recognize it, the one on the left is almost un untouched when it comes out in the final version of the book, so we definitely went with that. And from there, my job is to create a couple samples of that style. They don't have to be what ends up in the book, but often it kind of benefits me to do that because it cuts down on the overall amount of work. Um, this spread went through so many changes before it ended up here. I'm going to kind of rifle through that again. So, you know, it's, it's less about getting a particular scene and more the feeling that we're aiming for. And so I end up with three samples of what this book will look like before I get the okay to move on to sketches. We just 
almost want to be sure that we're on the same page in terms of the visual language of this book. So I mentioned that my parents live in Taiwan. And so as a freelancer, I can work remotely. And so I've had the habit of going back for a month at a time and just working out of Taiwan and living a normal life. Um, actually, the picture on the right is going to Chenping Su Dian, which is this beautiful 24-hour bookstore in Taiwan, um, and finding the sound of silence translated into Mandarin um, with the cutest bookstore lady ever. <laughs> But while I'm there, I always take lots of reference photos, um, anything from the grandpa on his bike to really sneaky pictures in the MRT, that's our subway. I try not to get caught. I feel like people don't like that. Um, to chaotic Taipei intersections, to wet markets where my parents still shop. And a lot of these find their way into my book because it's, you know, I'm always, I need to put something in it. And, you know, I love being able to draw from my own experiences and things I saw myself. So actually on the right is my mom hugging my niece one time that we were back in Taiwan. And this became the reference photo for this image that I drew. You can see that it became the sample. And then when it moved to finish, I added in the Guihua flowers that appear as a visual device throughout the book. And so we get into the meat of the sketches. So I will submit a whole body of sketches to the editorial team being like, this is what every spread will look like. For some spreads, I won't be totally sure. So you can see this park spread, I kind of included a couple of variations of it. I was like, hmm, maybe it should look like this. Maybe they should be going through like more of an immersive, like an area full of trees, but with the urban forest in the background. Or maybe it shouldn't be a, a spread taking up the whole, uh, one image for the whole spread, maybe it should be two. And you can see that these sketches are super rough. So sometimes I'll include reference, like this photo of ficus trees to be like, you know, I know my trees look really janky, but this is actually how ficus trees look in, in Taiwan. And so um, when I was working out how the end of the book would look, when we start to realize that Popo is getting sick, and then you kind of realize what's happening, just kind of trying a lot of different things. I think in the end, we thought, well, we wanted it to feel more dreamlike, and we wanted it, to, it not to feel so dark. So we kind of made a lot of changes from these initial sketches to what ends up um, being in the final book. And so this is kind of an example of the three rounds of sketch revisions I went through before we decided we're good to take this to final. I'm going to show you some of like the decisions we made or the decisions Connie and the, art, and the um, designer made that is part of the process of illustrating a book. So in this top row, you can see that first Popla and her, her granddaughter have phones then we kind of infer, you know, like we kind of convey the idea that maybe they're FaceTiming and then we kind of lean into the FaceTiming image. So a lot of authors and, or a lot of illustrators are adverse to the idea of showing modern technology in their images because it feels very trend, trendy and fleeting and ephemeral. Um, but we kind of discussed it. And I think that the reality for kids now is that they FaceTime to talk to their, their relatives. Kids are used to FaceTiming to talk to grandma and grandpa. Um, so we just, we thought, you know, we would love the kids to be able to see this and immediately know what it is. Um, in the second row, not many changes, kind of an aesthetic one, bringing in a pink background to show the actual pages themselves for some more visual interest. In the third row here, you can see that the girl actually changes color, um, the dress, the dress color changes. And that was this thought that we had. Originally, she just looks the same throughout the whole story, but we thought maybe when she goes to America, she would change clothes. Um, she has a bowl haircut in Taiwan, which is super Taiwanese, but then when she goes to America, it grows out. She puts it up with a barrette. 
and she gets a little taller too. And you know, we want to show the passage of time um, because purple is aging as well. And in the last row here, um, these are more functional. So one thing about picture books, the middle of a spread is called a gutter. And because pages fold, you want to stay out of the gutter. And so like there's all this shifting to get the little girl away from the gutter and then also to add some depth into the scene to make it more interesting. And from there on, once everything is approved, I get into the meat of the finishes. And so I work in Photoshop um, and here I just have time to just make everything finished and just be able to present everything the way I want it to. And that, you know, that's probably like two months there. The cover has to be developed. And because the cover is quite literally the face of the book, um, I kind of put more effort into these sketches. So here are all these different options that I came up for I Dream of Popol's cover. And then we also have to do the end papers. So I don't know if you remember from the scene where they're talking and she's sick, the little girl and the Popol both have cloud bed covers, but one is more Western and one is more Eastern. And so we use those for the end papers and it kind of symbolizes, it starts with the more Taiwanese clouds and it ends with the Western ones and kind of symbolizes her transition from one world to another. You know, there's a couple more opportunities to get in art at the very end. And for me, that's a, that's a way to strive for visual balance. Um, as someone who feels strongly about what represents Taiwan, I felt like you couldn't have a book about Taiwan without street vendors and stalls. You couldn't have a book about Taiwan without like, you know, a couple of people piled, piled on a motorcycle. And so that was my way to get that in here is putting it in the title page. And so here's the sketch that we ultimately got approved. And then the finish, you can see they're pretty close. It's just about tightening it up. And from there, it's just waiting. So I think I turned in all finishes for the book last February of this year. And then, you know, a few tweaks were made. And in the early fall, I got a package, a huge package. And that, those were the proofs. So the proofs are the full size images and they're printed on the paper that um, is used, going to be used for the book. So it's kind of one last opportunity to catch any mistakes, catch color corrections. I think when I was looking at the proofs, I was looking at the words, like there's an orange used some, for some words, like the I dream, the purple and I dream of purple and um, some of the beginnings of the sentences. And I thought, oh, shouldn't it match the red, the very dominant red in this color palette? But I talked to Connie, the editor, and Connie was like, you know, I was always taught growing up that you can't print words or names in red. It's very bad luck. And I was like, I do remember that. So, you know, it was nice to have a team that was all Taiwanese American who understood, you know, like we didn't have to go through the trouble of explaining. And so from then on, it's another five or six month lag. And then suddenly the book is real and um, it's appearing in bookstores. So this is beautiful Logan Berry books. And then so I'm here. Thank you so much, Julia. This was so full of useful information for anybody who's looking to be in this business and also just like learning more about you. And actually you do live a kind of like blessed and charmed life and kind of an inspiration for other people. And also it's kind of amazing that you work so hard. No, I'm, I'm super, like I, I, I'm super lucky and privileged. There's no question about it. Absolutely. Loganberry Books is open to the public Tuesday through Saturday from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. You can order books from us at store.loganberrybooks.com. You can also order from us by calling the store directly at 216-795-9800 or by emailing books at logan.com with your specific requests. 
You can support us by purchasing through our affiliate pages on bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash Loganberry Books at loganberry.papertrail.com for digital ebooks or on libro.fm for all your audiobook needs. Join our listener support program, where you can donate as little as 99 cents a month, less than $12 a year, to keep this podcast going. Go to our website at loganberrybooks.com, check our social media at Loganberry Books, and make sure to rate and subscribe to Lines from Loganberry and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Lines from Loganberry was produced and edited by Ted Hubish. As always, tune in next week for more bookish content from Loganberry Books. Thank you for listening.